scripture reading this morning comes from chapter 1. And I am really excited to talk about this passage. I love getting into Revelation and looking at the mysteries that are revealed. It comes from within this passage. Chapter 1. So beginning in verse... I am really excited to talk about this passage. I love getting into I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, looking at the and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, I was in the and to Pergamum, on the Lord's day, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea, and then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, his eyes a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. His eyes, from his mouth, came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, sword. Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. But he laid his right for the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. As for the this of the is God's stars, word this morning for his people. And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven churches. And the seven lampstands so are the seven churches. We're doing a sermon series and we're talking about God's plan to spread the good news of Jesus throughout the world. Would summarize we're doing a the, the sermon series we're talking about is Jesus is alive, meaning he's raised bread the good news. He has been put in charge throughout the world. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord. He's the one in charge. The sermon series. And finally, is Jesus is alive. Meaning he's raised he has a plan he has to build his kingdom the and invite, we we invite people of this world in into eternal life. And finally, two weeks back, the, the sermon was simply this. Jesus is inviting us into that plan, into doing the work of the kingdom. One time he said to his disciple Peter, come follow me. Jesus and I will make you fishers into that of men. Into doing the and so, of the kingdom. Jessica mentioned the handout. On one side is the scale, the chart she mentioned. On the other is the simple picture. And I want to, I'm going to keep coming back to this in the series. But it's based off that invitation to Peter to be fishers of men. And just to explain, and I want to, I'm going to keep coming back to this. It is a, 
a ship, not a cruise ship, not just for enjoyment. It's been given a mission. There are people in the water in danger of their life. And the work of the ship is to invite people for the water into the, the safety of the ship. In other words, it's talking about how we have this message of eternal life and salvation. And we can invite people into the, the life of Christ. Of the ship. And what I in other words, words, want to convey today is that we are not solo actors and we on that mission. God is not so much looking for superstars of the faith who will reach hordes of people. Instead, his means of operating is to gather them together. In other words, we function as a ship and that a congregation, a church congregation, works together to fulfill that mission. And that's what the ship represents. We're out on like surfboards, trying to, or jet skis, trying to jet around and pull people out on our own. We are working together. And that's what the ship represents. And so we join as a fellowship of Christ followers and work together as fishers of men. So here's my main point for this morning. In case I confuse you, Revelation is always a fun but confusing book. Here's my main point. Christ calls his disciples together into church congregations and sets them up as in their city public view as lampstands. He sets them up in public view that they would shine the light of salvation into the world. All the lampstand strategy. That is is the means by which the light of Christ goes forth. So, in that, is that the Lord calls his people together to live together in a fellowship, in an assembly. The word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia, the assembling of believers. And what I've noticed, and I've noticed it especially in the last 20 years is I have a lot of conversations the assembling of believers who live together and read the Bible but they don't feel a need to be part of church congregation they kind of are off on their own maybe they even have a, a small group that meets at home where they study the Bible together but they are not a so, uh, an established regular worship on, you know, at a time of the week, a public worship. And they, when I talk to them, they always emphasize, well, we're not saved by attending church, which I agree. No one is saved just because you show up at church. We, we have to have that individual personal relationship. Um, and so, well, then why do I need to be a part of this, this established thing, this organization? I can, I can do this on my own. Sometimes they've had a bad experience in church, sometimes really bad. Oftentimes they've just had a conflict, right? They had some disagreement with another Christian and they left the church and haven't been back since. It's always funny as a pastor, you'll find people, they will, they'll leave the church because of this person. Well, that person also left the church because of them and neither will come back. It's, it just happens. Um, 
But regardless of the reason, they, they think they can do just fine as a Christian without being part of a ship, right? They can do it on their own. And, and I want to think about that today. And I've been thinking about that for a while. Uh, George Barna, he's a, he does the polling and Christian polling. He noticed that tendency. And so this is a, I think his book is 2005. He had a book called Revolution. And let me read from him. He saw it as actually a potentially positive thing. And so here's what the description of the book is. And I think this should come up on the screen. It says, millions of believers have moved beyond the established church and have chosen to be the church instead. Research by renowned pollster George Barna points to a hidden revolution, one that will impact every Christian believer in America. Millions of committed Christ followers looking for more of God have stopped attending church on Sunday mornings. Why are they leaving? Where are they going? And what does this mean for the future of the church? So that's the, how they're trying to sell the book. But he, so I read the book. And this was at more kind of the earlier stage of the interweb. Um, and it was just starting to have an impact on things. And he, he made some good points. He says, Christians who strive to be ardent disciples of the Lord can find what they need outside of church. Think about sermons, right? You could find on YouTube some of the best sermons out there. It's even possible you might find someone who's a better preacher than me. But just know they won't be as humble as I am. So you can find the best sermons. You can go to concerts with people from your whole city, you know, the, the, all those worship concerts with the full bands and everything. And, and so you can enjoy that. You don't need the local church. You can have internet Bible studies, people from all over the world, from other countries. And, and how neat is that? And, and you can do um, service opportunities. You can connect with parachurch groups in your community to, to, to serve the Lord or, or go on international mission, short-term mission trips to, to, you know, to serve the Lord. And meanwhile, you know, the church tends to be slow to change and stuck in the past and full of people who have the, you know, you disagree with on things. And, and so it's just so much easier just to do all this on your own. And that was his argument. One of my worries with COVID, when we stopped gathering for a time and, or had limited gathering, is that that would actually exacerbate that direction that people would get used to not meeting together. And my hope is, and it's encouraging to see such a, a good crowd today, is that the desire to be in those kind of relationships, people will desire that even more, having been deprived of it for a time that we will regather as the church so we can fulfill the mission. So that's the intro to, to what I want to tackle with our passage. And it's open that question is, is the local church congregation, has it become irrelevant to God's plans today? So Revelation 1. If you're not familiar with Revelation, it is, is a fascinating book. It is written by John. And it's when John has had a vision of heaven and the things to come and things um, that are up there and things that will happen yet. He 
he's taken up in the spirit. He's not physically up, but he could behold this, and he's instructed to tell what he sees to the church. Now, I believe this is John the Apostle. That, that is debated sometimes, whether it's John the Apostle or some other John. If it is John the Apostle, as I think, he is old by the time he writes this. He's, he's probably in his 80s, and he's, he's already written a gospel. He's written a couple of letters, and now the Lord has one last task for his, his old friend. It is to write this vision of what is in the heavenly realms to guide the church towards something. So that's the context. Starting in verse 10, John writes, As I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a, a voice like a trumpet. And so, again, it's talking about how he's in the Spirit. That's how he's seeing what he's seeing. And he's given a message that he's to write to seven specific churches. These seven churches are all in, in what then was talk, talked about Asia Minor, part of the Roman Empire. Nowadays, it's part of Turkey. But back then, it was a key part of the Roman Empire. And each of them has a church congregation that meets in the So this, this book is given. The, the letter is supposed to be written to these seven church congregations. And Jesus is speaking to these congregations through this book. So then moving on to verse 12. So what does John do? He, he hears the voice. There's a little bit of drama here. He hears the voice and he turns to see, um, you know, turns in the direction of the voice. The first thing it mentions are the seven lampstands. So that's key. That's a key component of this vision, the seven lampstands. And then as he sees amidst the lampstands, he sees Jesus. Now, it, it, he's not named as Jesus, but it starts off by saying, one like a son of man, which is a title that, that Jesus had, had received. Um, one like a son of man. Um, but it's also saying something about this figure. It's saying he's in, in the form of a human being. Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, did not just become a spiritual blob. He, he's still a human being, even though he's in the heavenly realms. So he's one like a, a son of man. He's clothed in, in robes. Um, and then there's all these other components of, this, of what John sees. And this is using representational language. Each aspect of John's description points to a spiritual truth about the risen Jesus. So let's go through them. It says he has snow white hair. That represents the wisdom of, you know, in our day, we, in, here in America, we value uh, youth and beauty, right? Who are start, youth, young, youth and beauty is what we value. In ancient times, they had much greater respect for age and wisdom. Because very fewer people lived to be, you know, to get to the point of white hair. You're so much more likely to die. And so when someone did, they saw them as, as worthy of listening to. So the white hair, Jesus is wise, um, the eyes like flaming fire. That's talking about how he can see the truth of things, the intensity of vision. He sees past the false pretenses. pretenses. Uh, feet like burnished bronze. He will not be moved. In the warfare of ancient times, one army would try to push another army back. 
You know, they're stabbing them with swords, but they're also trying to push them. And the army that gives way usually loses. Jesus has feet that are strong and will not be moved. And then voice like many waters, like a waterfall. His word is powerful and and commands obedience. And then it mentions seven right stars in his right hand. We're going to talk about that later. But then there's this two-edged sword coming from his mouth. Probably the oddest part of the vision, right? A big sword coming out of your mouth. But that's an important truth. Jesus is ruling over his people. The sword represents the authority of rule. But that the way he's doing that is not by force. It's by his word. It's his teaching coming out of his mouth. That is how Jesus rules over his people. Okay, so that's what he sees. And John is overwhelmed. As rightfully, so it says that Jesus in his glorified state, and it says his face is like shining like a sun. It says, John, it says, I fell at his feet as though dead. And what does Jesus do? He comes and lays his right hand upon John. And what does he say? He says, I'm the first, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive. Can you almost see Jesus saying, John, it's me. All right, I'm the same one you walked with. I I was alive, and I died, and I'm alive again. It's me. You need not fear. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I will never die again. And I have the keys to death and Hades. That's another way of saying he has the ability to to open the door of salvation. That people can put their faith in him and enter into eternal life. And if if you're here this morning, and this is a little strange and new, if you're you're unfamiliar maybe with some of the, the church teaching, I want you to know the first and foremost thing that you need to know is Jesus, the Son of God, came and he gave his life, as Dan prayed, he gave his life for us that we might know God and be with God forever, have eternal life with God. And if that's something you're not, you're not sure about or you're not familiar with, keep looking into it, keep coming back and maybe talk to some people, talk to me or talk to, to other people you get to know and learn more about that offer because it's the greatest offer in the world. Jesus holds the keys to, to death and Hades, the place of the dead, and he can invite people into eternal life. So that's what John sees and what it's conveying. And, and then he says, write this down, let the rest of the church know. This, there's something in this vision the church needs to know and understand. And what that comes down to is Jesus is ruling his church. And this is guiding us. So what does that mean? I have this little diagram picture up there of, of the, trying to pull it all together. And it, notice the seven stars. Notice the, the key part of this vision is Jesus is in the midst of the seven lampstands. That's communing something. So there's the seven lampstands, the seven stars, and the two-edged sword are the, the means by which Jesus is, is ruling over his church, is guiding and leading his people. And so we're going to go through each portion of those three things.
So starting with the seven lampstands, the last verse in our passage explained the, the mystery of what, what has been seen so that we know what it is. And it says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So each lampstand represented one of those seven congregations in Asia Minor that were already named. And likely what the situation was John had been overseeing those seven congregations. They're, they're such that you could travel around in a circle and visit all of them. And so John, as a, an apostle, minister, would have been speaking at those. So those are the, the reason there's seven lampstands is, is those seven, those are the seven churches he knows and, and wants to communicate with. Um, but each one represents, each lampstand represents one of those. And if you really think, about it, there's obviously more than just seven lampstands. But, but the key part of this is, is the lampstand is how the light shines. Jesus says in Matthew 15, or Matthew 5, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they set it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So Jesus plants a congregation within a city or community so that it could shine the light. It's not meant to be hidden. It's meant to show the light of Christ in that area, in that city. And Jesus sets up that lamp by calling a group of believers together who commit to one another, who commit to God and one another, meet regularly for worship, public worship that others could see, and, and they, they there just by the, the work of Christ in them they begin to be a visible presence of God in that community. That's why I think it's an important aspect of worship, that it is public. People can come visit and see what we're doing here. We're, we're visible within in Glenville town. Um, but why, why are there just seven lampstands? I sort of started on that. Um, I, I think in reality there are a multitude of lampstands, but you only see seven in this vision. The simple answer is John oversees those seven churches. But I want to um, go deeper on that because in Zechariah 4 is a very similar vision from the Old Testament. And I think Revelation is drawing from this Old Testament passage. And I'm going to be very quick, but if you have a chance, you could go read Zechariah 4. And the key thing in Zechariah 4 is, is Zechariah is also taken up, has a vision in heaven, and he sees one lampstand. Now that one lampstand has seven branches. So picture a menorah, right? Seven branches off the one lampstand. And the, the context of Zechariah 4 is they're rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And so that lampstand represents how God is bringing the light back by, by the rebuilding of the temple. So the Jewish people at that point would have one place of worship. And that's how God would interact among them. So, so now in Revelation, what do you have? There's no longer just one, one lampstand. In fact, the temple had again been destroyed, this time by the Romans. And so what, what's God doing? He's not going to rebuild the temple. Instead, He's going to set up places of worship in every city, in every community. That's how he will show the light within the world. 
the lampstand strategy. God's power will rest upon his church congregations. Zechariah 4 says, not, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. When the Lord sets up a lampstand, when he calls his people together, this, the power of his spirit is active among them. That's how it breaks forth into a community, through his people, through his church congregations, as they worship together, as they love one another, as they serve one another, as they grow together in their knowledge and understanding, and as they share and spread that love to the people of, of their community. So that's the seven lampstands. What about the seven stars? So how does the Lord oversee those congregations? Well, what's in his right hand? Seven stars. And we're told that those stars represent the angels placed over each church. Now, first I want to give you a contrast. Um, did I put the picture of Zeus up, up on the, my thing? Is that up there? I did not. I forgot that. So, sorry. What does Zeus have in his right hand? I have a statue, a picture of a statue from Smyrna, from one of those towns. What does Zeus always have in his right hand? Lightning. So when they, when they show Zeus, the, the leader of the gods of the, the Romans and Greeks, right, he ruled over his people with lightning. You know, you get out of line, you get zapped. How does God rule over his people? How does the Lord rule over the seven stars? The seven stars are the angels that um, also could be the messengers of his word. So the word angel or angeloi in this passage. It says the seven angeloi in Greek. Angeloi can mean angelic messengers or it could just mean messengers. The word angelia means message. The word angelos means I, I or I, angelo means I give a message, right? So um, angeloi means messengers. And what happens is if you go to Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord says, write this to the angelos, to the messenger in Ephesus. Write this to the messenger in Smyrna. God gives a message to each of the seven churches through this angelos. Angelos is singular, angeloi is plural. So what it's saying is, is this could be translated as either an angel or messenger. And there's debate within, this is a Bible nerd debate. Are, are these stars, do they represent like angels watching over each church? Does God assign a special angel to watch over a church congregation and represent them? It is possible. And in fact, I kind of like the idea that, that East Glenville Church we have our own specific angel kind of watching over what we're doing and representing us before God. Certainly possible. The only thing is that, that idea is not taught anywhere else I could see in Scripture, that, that a church congregation would have a, a guardian angel. I think the other possibility is that angel is using the other meaning of the word angeloi, and that is it's speaking of a messenger, and that God would have a designated messenger within a congregation 
who would bring the word of God to the people. What, ha- what happens in churches? Paul sent Timothy to the Ephesians and he gave him this. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. In other words, Timothy is charged with bringing, taking God's word and bringing that word to the congregation, to the people. When pastors give a message, we, we're, we don't, we shouldn't, not just give our own advice, right? We're not just thinking, here's what I think would be best. Um, instead, we're instructed to preach the word, God's message, God's words to the congregation of people. And that's the charge every pastor is given. So it makes sense to me that the stars in Jesus' right hand would then be representative of the messengers given to the church who preach and prepare the word and teach that. Um, Now, full disclosure, I'm in the minority on my view in this. When other pastors think it means the angel part. So I could be wrong. Um, I'm here to preach the word, not my own ideas. Um, But it could just be I love the idea that I'm a star in the right hand of Jesus, and I'm just so caught up with that idea, I can't give it up. So there you go. The third, two-edged sword. So it's the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It emphasizes the two edges. Why that? Because to the word of God, there's two components. There is the written word, the scriptures, or what we have is the Bible. And by the time of Revelation, they would have started to have accumulated the, the letters and the gospels in written form. So you have the written word, and then you also have the spoken word of the Holy Spirit. It says that the, the, the sword of the Spirit is God speaking to his people, the spoken word, the word applied to our heart, to our life. And that's key is God's sword works that way. God speaks it into the life of people and a congregation. And so both edges of that sword work together. And then um, a, a few things to note about it. That word is meant for his own people, not for the people of the world. Christians have this tendency. We love to take the Bible and try to apply it to people out there who don't believe it. Right? We want to get all angry that the people of the world aren't following God's word. When God's word is given to shape us. And certainly we hope that society would hear that word and respond. But God's word is given for us to, to mark our lives by. And it, I found it's not very helpful to quote the Bible to people who are not interested in hearing God's word. It, it tends to not work. And it's not the plan. The two-edged sword is for those who've said yes to Jesus to work on us. And the two-edged sword is able to deal with the sin that's deep in our hearts. It can function like a scalpel. Talks in, in Hebrews 4 how the word of God is living and active, sharper 
than any two-edged sword. How it can dig down to the depths of our life and reveal to us the ways in which we are not following the ways and truths of God. That's how God's word works. As Jesus rules over his church, he's shaping us into being sons and daughters. He wants us as sons and daughters of God to reflect the character and holiness and goodness of the Lord. Now, God's discipline is not always fun, but it tells us that it's good when we're disciplined, when God's word says you are off base and you need to change because that actually shows that God is treating us as sons and daughters because a good parent corrects his child and leads them in the right way. So when God corrects and rebukes us, it means he loves us as a child enough to speak into our lives. And the last point I want to make out of that is we hear the word together. We, we learn together how to live out that, that truths from the, the, the two-edged sword. And I would say we're, we're, our mission here, our goal here at East Glenville is we're learning to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. We're inviting, we're, we're deciding together and inviting those who want to join us to let's figure out how, how following Jesus works and how that leads us to love God more and to love the people around us more. And I'll tell you this, the world pays more attention to, to how we treat each other or how we treat people out, out there than they do to our message. They'll hear our, our message and tune it out, but they will notice how we live, and they will notice whether or not we live up to what the Word says. Uh, we can push till we're blue in the face, but if the message is not reflected in our love for one another, no one's going to pay attention. The light of the lampstand will not shine, and we need each other. We're meant to do this together. You, as much as we think I can follow Jesus on my own, I'm, we need each other. We could so easily go astray. Sin is at the door crouching, and we can give in to it. We need our brothers and sisters around us. And I think it's as he gathers us into a congregation, a church congregation, that he's able to do things far more than ever more. Imagine something great and you want to do some good deed for the Lord and you do it and you do a bunch of good things and you, you know, what would someone outside the church say? Oh, they're such a nice person. Right? Oh, they're such a great guy. In other words, the glory of whatever you do, even if your intent is to do it for the Lord, the glory doesn't come from you. But when Congregation, they start to notice oh, the person. That's when they can start to see Jesus in us. That's why it takes a congregation to show Jesus to the world. Because individually, people will just think it's us. Now, I know salvation belongs to our God, and He can use many ways to speak into people's lives. He could use, you know, He. He could use parachurch groups, and he, I, 
I used to work for a parachurch group, right? He, you know, things outside the church God still can use for his glory. But what I'm convinced of is that, that his primary strategy is the lampstand strategy, is congregations, people committed to one another and living it out and being shaped by God's word together. Um, and so I want to finish with this picture again. We are meant to work together to, to fulfill the mission of Christ. We're not just out there on our own little jet ski, jetting around, pulling people out of the water. And the other thing I want to point out about this ship is the different roles that come up on it. It's, it's difficult to pull people out of the water. It's difficult to, you know, as, as Jessica shared her story, like, that, that young woman that she interacted with was pretty far away from ever responding to Jesus. And maybe she just got moved one step in that process. And, and sharing Jesus with the people of this world um, is, is not easy. And so there's different roles on the ship. And next week I'm going to talk a little more about that aspect of it. But what I want us to go away with today is Jesus is alive. He's been put in charge, and he has a plan. And that plan is calling his people together to, into a congregation. That plan is calling some to be spiritual leaders who teach the word. That plan is to, through the word, shape, each, shape our lives to, into holiness and to teach us how to love God and love others. That plan is to then set that church as a lampstand in its community, not hidden away, but, but done in public view so that the people of the world can see in it so that it bears the light. And then as his spirit is at work in the hearts of those people out there, he is able to bring them in, into the church and add them to our number. So I want you to think about your involvement with this congregation. Are you in this with us? Are you excited about being a part of, of a congregation that wants to bear the light of Christ in this community? Have you found your role, your niche, your part of, of the mission? And, and are you on board with doing this? Where would you put yourself in this picture of uh, being fishers of men? Let me pray, and then we'll move on towards our Lord's Supper together. Father, I thank you that, that you have called us together. I thank you that you've brought me here to this congregation. I rejoice in that, that you've, you've, set, you've set things together for your good purposes. Lord, show us how to fulfill your mission. Show us how to work together to love one another, even as we grow in our love for you. And may somehow, by your grace, may people come to know you through this fellowship. We ask that in the name of your Son. Amen. One thing God does when he calls churches together is that they join together in the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it's a way of uniting together as a congregation that the emphasis we share in one loaf and one, one bread. And Phil's going to lead us in that, but I want us, before we come, to give thought 
to this. How, before you come receive of the Lord, I want you to examine your life. We're instructed to examine our hearts and our life and come before God, confess your sins silently, and then we'll be ready to receive at the table. So let's join in silent prayer. Father, these sins and failings we confess to you and thank you that through the blood of Christ you have cleansed us and washed us so that we are ready to receive. And brothers and sisters, I declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ that your sins are forgiven. Come to the table and receive of the Lord Jesus. Let's sing together.